So I'm writing a novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Today, I'm speaking with Julian Burnick. Julian is an accomplished writer for Goodman Games' excellent line of role-playing games, co-host of the Emmy Award-winning Dungeon Crawl classic podcast, Spellburn, and he's also a poet. In fact, he's written a fun, whimsical, dark, and delightful narrative poem of gothic horror. It's called Castle Bash, a record of the most unfortunate doings at Castle Bash, as told by an unnamed poet who was never seen again. And that's the main reason I wanted to have him on the show. Like a lot of people, it took some time for me to really get into poetry, something I'll talk about more with Julian, but eventually the right poet came along and unlocked it for me, and since then I've not been an expert, but I've tried to keep an eye on it. You know, I've certainly enjoyed some contemporary things. Uh, I highly recommend, for example, the work of Patricia Lockwood, um, because it's, you know, onto its own right, like poetry, it doesn't need to justify itself at all. But as someone who wants to write short fiction and novels um, and really anything else, I think it's worth paying attention to poetry and trying your hand at it, even if you never want to try to be published or even show it to another human being, because of how it forces you to think about language in a sort of granular rhythmic way, you know, that nothing else really does, I feel. And so for all those reasons and more, I mean, I've very much enjoyed Julian on Spellburn and actually have both played in and run his Mutant Crawl classic module, Hive of the Overmind, which is really good fun. I recommend it. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to talk to him. So why don't we do that? Why don't I shut up? <laughs> okay, here we go. And here I am with Julian Burnick. Hi, Julian. Hello there. Good to have you in, man. This is really fun. I've, I've been looking forward to it. Um, maybe I've formed uh, one of those parasocial relationships people like to talk about uh, from hearing you on Spellburn for so long, but I feel like I already kind of know you and it's fun to spend time with you. So let's do that. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Why don't we just get right in there with this question? What was your earliest creative writing? Was it the uh, Burnick Criticals and Fumble Tables uh, I read about on Goodman <laughs> Games there? Or? Uh, no. My... Gosh, earliest creative writing. You know, the the first thing I really, I'm sure I wrote little stories in school and stuff. And in fact, I was just babysitting our niece, my wife and I were babysitting our niece. And I had my niece write uh, stories about our cats this morning. She's seven. And it's funny you mention it because I probably did this kind of thing, you know, but we, we made her write two, one, one three sentence story about each of our cats. So she's learning, she's really into writing and trying to spell stuff and all that good stuff. So uh, that was fun. But uh, you sort of along those lines, the, the first thing I really remember uh, is a story I wrote in sixth grade just for fun at some point because I was bored or something. But I was in the classroom and I wrote a story called Snow White, Ver Snow White versus the X-Men. <laughs> and I was, I, I don't, uh, it was very serious. It sounds funny. But it was deadly serious, like Snow White. I think the X-Men went to the fairy tale land of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And, you know, they had to, I, I don't remember the story at all. But I remember the, 
it was like a comic book crossover where the heroes have to fight, but then eventually they become friends or something. So they probably had to oh, fight okay. the dwarves or something. I, I don't really remember very much. About it. <laughs> Maybe they teamed up against the Wicked Witch. I'm imagining yeah. like a Chris Claremont style, like Snow White explaining her powers as she, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, no, I'm sure that it was, uh, you know, in, in, in the Claremont tradition of having a strong female protagonist, right? Snow White mm-hmm. was probably a, a badass. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sorry that it's lost to the fog of time. I remember I illustrated it as well. And oh, awesome. that was, that was, or at least the, like a cover picture or something like that. Okay. Okay. And so then after that, uh, maybe not right after, but definitely after, um, you know, in our emails leading up to this, uh, you kindly shared with me how when you were younger, you wrote a lot of novels and got kind of burned out on it. I'm wondering what kind of novels were you writing and what caused the burnout, do you think? Yeah, well, um, you know, to give the to give a 22nd kind of overview of my my writing life, you know, I've, I've always written, as you can see, I've always dabbled in fiction and dabbled in poems and stuff like that. So I, I wrote a lot of poetry in high school and I wrote a lot of fiction. I actually wrote a lot of fiction about our D&D characters and D&D universe in high school. Nice. And uh, then I ended up going to uh, poetry school, getting my master's uh, in poetry in uh 92 about when I was about 22 fresh out of college didn't know what the hell I was doing and when it went off and got my master's in poetry so I've always kind of had this tension between writing fiction and poetry and fiction and poetry and fiction and poetry and both really I wrote my first novel when I was in poetry school in uh, that first year and um, it wasn't very good it was a gothic uh, romance of sorts Uh, and um, I had one agent because it was poetry school. I had one agent coming around uh, looking for actual fiction manuscripts. And I, I gave it to her, even though I was in the poetry workshop, not the fiction workshop. Uh, and she took it. She liked the few first few pages enough to read it, but then never uh, cared about it after that. So after that, uh, I got my master's in poetry and I went off uh, into the working world uh, shortly thereafter, kind of didn't go the academic route, if you will, that you can sort of go into the creative writing academic track or the English, get your PhD and be an English professor and do all that stuff. I, you know, decided not to do that. So I went, uh, got and got a day job uh, and got married and moved back to my hometown, Minneapolis, and and wrote a bunch of novels. and, you know, I found that, I bet this will sound familiar maybe to yourself, maybe to others, that uh, I loved writing novels, but I didn't know how to publish them and I didn't enjoy that part of it. And that's probably the, how you can tell that I'm a hobbyist and not a professional, right? I just did it for fun and I got done with one and instead of really um, pushing it, prof- you know, actually trying to get published and get an agent and but send it out to 100 people and track it all and blah, 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 I, I just said, well, that was interesting. It was okay. This was all right. This kind of sucked. Okay, now I'm going to write the second one. And then I just wrote the second one. And then when I was done with that, I wrote the third one. And then, and you know, that I think the fourth one that I wrote was actually kind of the best one in the sense of the most, the most fun to read and reread. So there's that. But uh, yeah, I was never, I never got very serious about uh, trying to get them published just because I was already working hard, you know, working 50 hours a week and doing other stuff. And, you know, so that's that it kind of petered out after that one, which was probably right around the time I started to really heavily get back into gaming stuff. And I think my creative juices and my time started to get more focused back into that. 
Okay, cool. Well, hey, I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I don't think there's a, should be a hierarchy putting hobbyists below professionals, quote unquote, especially because like, it sounds like you wrote for the pleasure and you got that what you wanted out of it. So to me, that's a success, even if, you know, you didn't go all the way with, with publishing and trying to get it all out there. Plus, as you say, you were working and living a life and it's hard to fit writing into the margins of that. Moving on, I kind of wish this was a role-playing game podcast because <laughs> I could ask a whole episode's worth of questions just about your writing for Goodman Games, but we'll keep it literary for now. Uh, so to that end, I'll ask you, what was your first encounter with the appendix and reading list, which Goodman Games' flagship product, Dungeon Crawl Classic, uh, this is for the listener, of course, uh, is so heavily rooted in? How would you define the general appendix and feeling in storytelling, whether it's games, novels, or otherwise? Yeah, so... I think the first thing I read in the list was probably Tolkien. I read it when I was very young. Um, I think around sixth, seventh grade, I started reading, uh, you know, Lord of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, in which it was a slog when I was, you know, I was 11 or 12 or something. Um, but, uh, but it was, you know, great and I loved it. And uh, so probably Tolkien was first and it kind of, kind of grounded me in D and D elf dwarf tropes and that kind of stuff halfling tropes and so forth. Um, and then also not too far around that time, I remember reading like Fritz Leiber, reading the Fawford and the Mouser uh, stories as well. And uh, I liked them then, but I don't think I totally, I probably didn't get the humor quite as much at that point. And actually mm -hmm. I kind of always continued on and off with those authors. I read a little bit of Lovecraft uh, in high school and college, but um, I, I came back to Liber in college and back to Tolkien in college. And uh, Liber especially, I really enjoyed when I reread the books in college. And, and then I got his satire and I got his, you know, how he sort of, his commentary on the human condition, you know, and uh, even maybe what we would now call a little bit of toxic masculinity with the uh, with the buddies who are always, you know, they need each other. They obviously kind of love each other, but they are way too proud and macho to admit it. And they are always getting into fights because they can't express their true feelings, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you got the entire nightmare, right? Starting with them being on the outs. <laughs> Right, and, exactly. uh, just because they can't, I think, it, I think they're fighting over the spelling of Fafford's name, and in the end, Fafford's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's uh, just, no, it's it's always great, and they always get. I also loved that, uh, of course, you know they they often go through this long adventure and come out of it no better or slightly worse than they started. That worldview really uh, appealed to me. You know, I, I got it where I was in my life and my upbringing, blah blah blah, uh, and the sense of humor, especially. And, you know, this, the humor has really been important to me because in my own, and when I described that progression of novels to you just now, the, the last one that I did was the funny one. And I kind of liked it the best. And it also comes out in Castle Bash, obviously, that it has a humorous element to it. I mean, dark, but humorous still. So, you know, that's kind of been the thing that uh, appeals to me in, in some of that writing. And I think it's more... Now, of course, that's not in all of Appendix N, but um, when you look at Vance, when you look at Liber, that's, you know, you, you see the humor for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you should mention Vance, because I was going to next ask you if you could maybe tell us a little bit about what it was like wrestling with the highly unique voice and vocabulary. I mean, I've got that dictionary somewhere around here of all the Vance and vocabulary uh, of Jack Vance in your work on Goodman Games, The Dying Earth setting uh, for Dungeon Crawl Classics. What was it like trying to, like, capture his voice? 
Yeah, we we uh, we were blown away when Joseph Goodman got the the rights to do a, a DCC Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG uh, project for Dying Earth, and it, you know we didn't even contemplate the challenge. We were so excited about it. The as far as trying to write in that voice stylistically, we were helped because Mark Bruner, our project lead, uh, made a giant comprehensive vocabulary list of Vancian verbiage, uh, as well as, you know, monsters and plants and animals and food and the, so all that stuff. So we, we, you know, we had a list to draw on, but of course, having read Vance, you have sort of a sense of how to write like Jack Vance, but of course, when you try to do it, it's a lot harder than it seems. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was a challenge and, uh, I think we d- pulled it off, and I, I'll tell you what, the product is going to be written mostly in a Vancean way, uh, as much as we could do, and I, I'm pretty happy with it. But the uh, that that's an element that you can't really separate out from the stories, really, because the, the style of Jack Vance is very much the part of the dying earth. Uh, it's not just Jack Vance. I mean, even though Vancean style, you know, he writes in other work that he does. The Dying Earth style is a, even a little more flowery and ornate and archaic and and strange. Yeah, so it was a, it was a big challenge. You know, I also tried to bring not just that, which was its own challenge, but then in mm-hmm. addition, I also wanted to bring that kind of Vancean skullduggery and uh, you know betrayal and uh, everybody is always kind of backstabbing each other, cynical, you know, behind the back, you know, everybody's, everybody's backstabbing each other because they fully expect that the next fellow is going to backstab them. So they're just trying to beat him to the stab, actually. And uh, I was really, I, I, I really enjoyed that, that, that sort of cynical humor part of me, uh, you know, enjoy, always enjoyed that in Vance and the Dying Earth in particular. So I also tried to emphasize that in some of the adventure writing I did for the project. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny how there's this sort of tonal thing where it can feel very whimsical and people speak in a very formal language but pretty much everyone is a son of a bitch to some degree or another <laughs> and oh, i don't yeah. mean like grim dark like it's not miserable not at all uh it's very let's say whimsical and fun but then yeah as you say everyone's ready for everybody else to stab each other in the back like it's uh, um I, I know the kickstarter really just went above and beyond uh, i backed it to the hilt i'm glad i did and there's still some content to be written so i'm just going to abuse my privileges here of, of having your time as a podcast host and say i really want a worminger class uh, oh wow <laughs> i love that section in Kugel saga where uh, listener if you're not familiar there's a part where long story short uh, literally the main character a thief named kugel uh, gets on a boat which is propelled by two giant worms one on either side and there's a lot about the maintenance of them which must sound so dry when i say it out loud but trust me it is one of the most entertaining parts of the story and i love it and i would love to play as one <laughs> well I, I can't i i will here's a huge reveal um because hmm. i think this has come out in playtest now the rules are not 100 percent final um, although they're pretty darn far down the road at this point. But there is not a class Worminger, but there is a background Worminger. So you may be a... It, DCC, of course, has you roll for your backgrounds and you start life with a trade good and uh, like a, a trade good and a weapon, right? Yeah, like your knight will be a former gong farmer or a former exactly. like, uh, yep. locksmith or something, yeah. Yep, so your magician may very well have been a former Worminger or your your witch or your vat thing or what what have you. So yeah, it's very possible that you uh, that started life as a Worminger. I, not your vat thing, uh, since they're going <laughs> bats. They they didn't have a former career as a Worminger, but but your magician, witch, or uh, wayfarer, wayfarer may, have done some, yeah. may may have done some worminging. 
worming <laughs> Wormingering. Sounds like lingering. Yes. Uh, the last thing I'll say before we move on, because I just I love it so much, you can tell I just want to talk about this for an hour. Isn't there a Bantian vocabulary list that's going to be on the inside of the uh, GM screen, or is it just inside, well, or just in quotation marks, uh, inside the book? I feel like that was mentioned somewhere along the line in one of the Twitch broadcasts. Or am I wrong? I, I do believe that will be, I, I can't speak to where it's going to be in the final product, but I, yeah, I would think all that hard work has gone into that that list. I would think that they will put it in the, I don't know if it'd be in the player's appendix of the player's book. You know, there's going to be three books, I think, in the box set and then all the adventures and stuff. Um, so, and the screen layout, yeah, I, I don't know what it'll look like at this point, but yeah, it should be there somewhere, I believe. Okay, because I just think that's so so neat, and like it's what a what a he's not big like Tolkien, but he's a big name, you know, Vance. And to try and tackle his voice and his vocabulary, even if he wasn't as specific as he is, I mean, he just made up a lot of words on top of picking the most archaic ones he could possibly find. And I love that you guys are willing to tackle it in the voice of the product you're creating, but also encourage people playing to play with the words as much as oh, yeah. the artifacts and spells and stuff. Yeah, it's a terrific exercise. It's a challenge. And it's just an honor, you know, to be working on that and playing in that sandbox. I mean, you know, we were talking about Appendix N and, and uh, I, I've done a big survey since I started getting involved in Goodman. I started looking more at Appendix N. I'd read a lot of that. I hadn't read a lot of it. And so I went and, you know, circled back and read most of them at this point. But I will say, I mean, Vance still is just head and shoulders above the the rest of those guys pretty much for me i mean i still still love lovecraft i still love clark ashton smith i still love liber but i i but vance to me is just kind of a my favorite i guess yeah well i mean i it's not like uh obvious obvious but knowing what you you've done with dying earth and, and obviously having um red castle bash thank you so much for sending me a copy i can see like a loose connection with a sense of whimsy and fun but not being afraid to pull out characters being awful to each other and terrible, weird things uh, that you do not plan for or expect in life. <laughs> yeah, I think you could I think you could say that it's not especially Vancean, but it has a quality of Vance that we both just happen to share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> perhaps is the way, you know, perhaps Vance and I are writing from the same spot to some degree. Okay, so moving from one voice, uh, someone else's voice to yours. When it came to figuring out the voice of Castle Bash, what did you have in mind? Were there uh, any specific works that you, you were thinking you know, about while you did? You know, we're like, okay, well, I'll make this fun, do I make this dark? What do I want to do here? Like, yeah, it's a great question. The um, obviously, it's written in. I mean, it's written in meter and verse. So, for those following along at home, it, it's a, a narrative poem that's written in ten line stanzas, and I've got a. Um, the rhyming scheme kind of varies from stanza to stanza, which is pretty unusual. But I found it was a, it's, there's always a fairly rigid rhyming scheme. So it's not that I stop rhyming and just do blank verse or have it suddenly go into free verse because it scans as much as I'm able to do. And it rhymes pretty regularly, I will say. But, um, but I do vary it up so that it's not always the exact same scheme stanza to stanza, which probably some purist would say is her heresy or whatever. So, th so that forces you right there into a pretty archaic mode, right? Like people haven't written in sort of that sort of rhyming verse stanza much in the 20th century. And maybe they're doing it now in the 21st century, but I'm not aware. So especially in kind of narrative stuff. So it's a, it's a throwback to probably the 19th century stuff like like Lord Byron, you know, Don Juan and Child Harold and that kind of stuff. And um, and it's written in a somewhat archaic 
tone, which is also kind of a little campy and tongue in cheek, let's face it, um, which I think kind of goes with its sort of gothy, goth ish, uh, gothic. Hey, let's let's just call it gothic. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's gothic. It's absolutely gothic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, and the cover art is very fun and gothic too. I, I, I don't want to forget to mention the wonderful cover illustration by uh, David M. Persinger. And uh, listener, you're right. Why he's describing a drawing on a podcast? You can see it uh, on the website at the blog post for this episode um, at some. So I'm writing an and of course, if you go to Amazon to buy the book, which I highly recommend, uh, you can also see the cover there. And yeah, that, that I feel everything you're describing uh, so far, the tone and everything, that is absolutely in the cover art. Great job there. I love Eliza, the uh, the bash, the daughter. She looks very much to me like um, Helena Bonham Carter when she was younger, maybe mm. in like Fight Club or something. That's that, that absolute mischief and dark makeup is wonderful. Uh, I yeah. really love that cover. I think, you know, I think Tim Burton should option this, actually. He, it would be perfect for uh, Helena Bonham Carter, although, you know, I still picture Helena Bonham Carter like, you know, a room with a view, and she's she's a little older than that now, and so am I. But um, anyway. Hey, man, um, if they can make Samuel L. Jackson look 30 years younger for a Marvel movie, why not? <laughs> well, he ages extremely well, I gotta say. Um, anyway, Tim Burton, if you're listening, it can be yours. Uh, I think you'd be, it'd be great, so just saying. And we got a screenwriter here to help you adapt it. So yeah, there you go. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll look at this hustling here. Yeah, I'll totally write the first uh, the first draft screenplay there. And you know what? I, I don't blame you at all for saying Tim Burton because um, I my, my partner came over and saw me reading. She saw the cover and first thing she said was, "Oh, is that like a Tim Burton thing?" <laughs> so <laughs> well, you know, there. there you go. We can call it the we can call it the Nightmare Before Castle Bat. We can I can be flexible <laughs> on the title. So yeah, so it sounds like um, sorry I took you a little off the rails there. You were talking about and by all means, please feel free to get into like the technical oh, stuff. The, like, this is a back into the podcast. back into the poem thing. Sorry, we did get yeah. a little off. That's okay. I, I, I took you off the rails there. No, that's all right. So ten lines. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, yeah, I mean, so to address the style a little more uh, focused in a more focused way. Yeah, we we I made a choice obviously to do it in a more archaic way because it's very self-consciously I don't want to say that it's super campy and it's not a parody by any means, but it has a it has an element of tongue-in-cheek humor to it, especially cuz the narrator thinks he's is the greatest poet ever. Those reading the poem can tell he's not the greatest poet ever, but also he's a not especially admirable person anyway. And so I, I, you know, there's a there's a little bit of a tongue in cheek thing, and I thought that that's high style, low motive kind of thing goes um, is very Vancey, and actually the contradiction yeah, again, so again I don't I didn't think of it at all as a Vancey work, but again we just kind of dovetail by you know for spiritual reasons myself and Jack. So well, that is obviously an influence, you know. Yeah, I mean, no, in the sense that you love his work, hundred percent. Um, yeah, high style, low motivations. I think it bring. I, I think just that little ironic thing. About about him always trying to flower everything up, uh, but the things he does are, 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 you know, just is a nice contrast. Now, if you go back and read, you know, real gothic fiction, it's not really like that generally. But that's a little bit of an interesting 21st century tension looking back at some of that original inspirational material. Well, and you know what that makes me think of? It's been so long since I've read it, but have you read uh, Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen? I did read that just a few months back. Fun book, for sure. And yeah. for those readers who aren't familiar, it's actually the only book of Austen's I've read, but it's sort of written in response to Anne Radcliffe and Walpole and some of those guys, Monk Lewis and the original wave of Gothic writers. And she sort of writes this Gothic novel from the 
point of the heroine. But spoiler alert, everything is not everything has a pretty mundane type explanation at the end of, of the book. So it's a little bit of a parody of all the gothic troping, the tropes and trappings and all that stuff. Yeah, that's how it was taught to me uh, years ago when I was doing my bachelor. It was basically meant to be, you know, her, yeah, her response and kind of a parody of, of gothic horror. Sure. So, you know, I was wondering, uh, as someone who read it quite recently, does it have that kind of contrast of like high art, low motive at any point? Yes and no. The difference would be, except for how credulous and naive the main character is, Austin's not really making, I don't think she's really making fun of her protagonist at all. I, I think she likes her protagonist, but her protagonist has this weakness for gothic novels, which was seen as trashy at the time. And and the way that she really buys into the gothic stuff and begins to believe she's getting caught up in this gothic, you know, craziness with the big old mansion and da da da. So Austin's poking fun at her in the, in that respect. But I think at the same time, Austin likes her protagonist, who is a virtuous person and who is struggling with women in society and tr- try to get her husband and kind of do typical Jane Austen things. So yes and no, she's but she's more pointing she's more poking fun at gothic tropes and a little bit at at one of her character's uh hobbies or or fandoms i guess we'd call it now less so is she actually making fun of her protagonist right like it's pretty good natured i would say and then at the end i think her protagonist has kind of been on a journey and come out the other side i'm obviously not as much in sympathy with my protagonist you know no no (laughs) um although in a way i am you know because he is also me and that also just speaks to probably jane austen was probably a better person than me anyway but um (laughs) so you know he is also me and those are facets of my personality that are more drawn out more emphasized and and built out in a, a little bit flashier way probably Okay. Well, I, it just occurred to me, we have been talking a lot about gothic horror and even a response to gothic uh, horror fiction. I haven't really defined it. How how would you define it for our listeners who aren't familiar? And, and why did it draw you in? It's a great question. And I'll, I'm going to go back and tell you my gothic uh, fiction origin story, if you will. Um, and then we'll, and because this is the only way I really know to explain it exactly. So, I, you know, of course I knew about universal monsters and Dracula and Wolfman and Frankenstein and stuff like that. And then when I was in high school, I read a little Anne Rice and stuff and got pretty into that for a while. I didn't really un- know this literary history much at all until I bought the Ravenloft box set for d d in about 1990-ish or something, something, right when it came out. And I couldn't afford it. I was really broke. And the only thing I spent money on was comics at that point in my life. No no clothes, some food, and that was it. Maybe going on dates if I, you know, whatever. But that was pretty much it. Comics and comics and comics. But I love this so much that I, I was so you know, curious that I went out and bought the Ravenloft box set. And they had a little appendix N of gothic literature in there, starting with Walpole's uh, Castle of Otranto, Radcliffe's Mysteries of Udolfo, and the Italian Monk Lewis's The Monk. And I think they recommended The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, as well as uh, there's one or two others and I'm forgetting. But those are the main ones and I I sat down and read them all. I started with Shirley Jackson. (laughs) You know, that novel, I read it in about uh, you know, I just sat and read it beginning to end. I mean, it's one of the great novels I've ever read in my life. It's one of the best written, most compelling, horrible, haunting novels ever, psychological, but also supernatural. And 
really arresting. I mean, uh, I give it a 12 on a scale one to 10. That's in a class by itself. It doesn't belong with the others because it's a 20th century novel and so on. But the others were more what Jane Austen was writing about. And they're full of old decrepit castles, eccentric, rich noblemen who capture young ladies and and try to marry them and that kind of stuff. The exotic locales, you know, the, the monk is set in a Spanish cloister in Spain, you know, in 200 years before it was written or whatever. You know, the Italian is about a young lady who, uh, I think a young French woman who is, you know, betrothed to an Italian nobleman and has to creep around his castle and try to escape and stuff like that. Oh, sorry, that's Mysteries of Adolfo. That's the one I read of, of those. And Otranto is a bizarre, th- the Castle of Otranto is one of the first ones that kicked it off and is a really kind of a bizarre novel. But um, so you, you've got these elements. Uh, if you just, I mean, I hate to just make a checklist, but you kind of make a checklist. You know, you've got an old, you know, some kind of old, structure, mansion, haunted house, castle type thing. You've probably got a young lady, uh, a virtuous young woman who is um, single and probably the bad guy is trying to marry her for bad reasons or, you know, something like that, which is a you know very common thing in that kind of Regency mm-hmm. era anyway. And you've got a supernatural element, which may or may not be real, depending on who's writing the story and what's going on. And uh, yeah, you've got some danger and you've got an exotic locale. They're not set in, uh, for the most part, they're not set in England. Although England had plenty of decrepit castles and crazy noblemen and noblewomen, for some reason, they didn't set them in England. They set them in Spain and Italy and southern France and I guess you make it more exotic and alien you know for the the reader who imagine reader being a British person I guess for a lot of these yeah certainly so so you know obviously I took that model to myself you know castle high up in the mountains and supernatural stuff and eccentric noble people and all that good stuff and you you went further I don't I won't spoil anything (laughs) but there's this there's more yeah. than the genre expectations, and I think there's nothing wrong with the genre expectations. I mean, we go to watch a superhero movie, we're expecting a, an individual with powers beyond mortal men or whatever. Nobody goes, oh, boring, there's superpowers in my superhero movie. <laughs> so any more than I think someone would come to this and go, yeah. what, there's a castle with weird things happening in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could say it's a weird fiction um, with with a capital W or a small W as you wish. And yeah, I, 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 it certainly checks off the Gothic checklist stuff, but it also does stuff that Gothic stuff doesn't typically do. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Like I said, I don't spoil anything listener, but trust me, there, there's more than what's on the cover as lovely as that cover is. Yeah, that's fair. Now, uh, when it came to writing Castle Bash, I'm wondering, you know, there's the poetry, there's the Gothic horror, there's this particular narrative. What came first to mind? Was it like, I want to write a, poem or I want to write a story in poem form or is it more like oh, I want to do gothic horror or did it just like the shape of the story kind of come uh, up first how did what was the workflow kind of imaginative workflow on that great question and and so here's the thing it's funny how this worked out and in fact it's going to sound sort of like my novel thing as I was telling you, I, I got really into novels for a while, and then I kind of fell back into the gaming, and the, that took over my creative stuff for a while. But I was still writing, and all this time I was still writing poems and poems and poems and poems, occasionally sending manuscripts out, occasionally publishing poems in magazines. So I published a poem in a local magazine here and got invited to a reading, went to the reading and had a few beers and hung out with the, the folks at this local magazine. And 
short story version, became friends with them. And after a year or two of that, uh, ended up working with that magazine as a poetry editor, which I still do. It's called Whistling Shade Magazine. And you may notice that the book is published by Whistling Shade ah. Press. So my my friend, Baron Joel Von Valen, we call him the Baron, the, the name the name Joel Von Valen, who's a great writer, by the way, he's got, a, he's got novels and he's got poems out and he's a, a great writer and, and quite a gothic character in his own right. Joel said that he's trying to publish long poems, but he can't find any. And I said, really? And, and, and I said, you mean like Don Juan by Byron and so on? And he said, yes, yes, I love Byron. Exactly. And I said, well, I can do that. I mean... <laughs> Of course. And uh, so he calls them his jest series, G-E-S-T-E, which is a, a short, often humorous, uh, longer poem type form. At this time, he'd, he'd picked a long poem from a woman uh, poet in Iowa who uh, he, he'd found who did a long poem. And that was one of the few he could really find. I don't think it was exactly what he had had in mind when he started it, but he liked her poem. And so he published her stuff. And then, so I, I started off from nowhere, just I was going to write a long poem because how hard can it freaking be. Well, I, you know, I got, I don't know, a, a ways into the first one, tore it up, hate it, you know, it was just not, not going anywhere. And then the second one, the first one, I don't even remember what it was. The second one was kind of a gothic thing about a highwayman and a noblewoman and that is kind of, uh, could have been a Jane Austen-ish, Regency era-ish type thing. It was bad and it was not working. So anyway, I threw that up away. And just started over. And then I got to my third one, which was Castle Bash. And and like, you know, kind of like the, the novel process, uh, you know, I, I found that the humor kind of contributed, I think, to being the best one. You know, the thing that kept me going and having fun with it and interested in it uh, enough to really finish it and then refine it and so on. You know, you got to like your own work. If you've ever tried to write something because you thought you were going to get paid for it or or just, you know, on a dare or a whim or whatever. I mean, you can do it for sure. And people have done it and continue to do it, I'm sure. But to really do it uh, for your own sake, you've got to like it. You've got to be into it. And uh, so that this combination of elements, you know, the gothic stuff that I love, the, hu- the sense of humor in there, the dark humor and uh, everything just then fell into place for me. And I, I was able to push through with this third attempt. Awesome. So we, you've, you've touched upon various stages in your sort of journey in, in, in life with poetry, and I'm fascinated to know you went to school for it. I didn't know that. So, like, I, I personally, I found it took me a while to, to get into poetry. Uh, like a lot of people, I think it just was about finding the right work. It wasn't really until I was in university that I read Spencer's The Fairy Queen. That, something about that just cracked it wide open for me, and I was like, oh, okay, all right, I'm into this. It's, mm. Where did it begin for you? Where what was what sort of was, were you always into it, and how and how did you fall so deep as to go to school for it? I think that's fascinating. Not not a lot of people do that. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I can't, you know, if I'm thinking back to my first encounters with poetry, I suppose that would have been in, you know, grade school and so on. I remember a poem in junior high school in seventh grade. I wish I could remember my teacher's name. She was terrific, uh, that English teacher. She said two things that stuck with me for my whole life. She taught me a poem about winter that I don't remember uh, much of, but there are a few things about it. And I'm from Minnesota, mm-hmm. by the way. And uh, this is a, there was a poem about winter, about winter is coming and the the winter's blowing in on the prairie and the nature. And it's actually, it's addressed to a bird that the bird has to 
fly south because winter is coming. Winter is coming. <laughs> that house starts showed up. Like, it was very uh, strange. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no. Long before that stuff. So, uh, but this, but I still remember lines of that poem because it was winter is coming. Head south, get going. Any time now, it must be snowing or something like that. And the rhyme scheme, it just it all kind of stuck with me. So there's that. And then she also taught me the, the very simple phrase: if you want to be a writer, comma write. So uh, that also stuck with me, and I've always kept writing, and not a lot of it has gone in any particular direction, but I always kept writing and kept writing and kept practicing. So anyway, the poetry, I was writing poetry even in high school, and, you know, I had a note, I had notebooks, and I'd write them in class, and I'd do all sorts of, you know, just random stuff. But in college, I got, uh, you know, I was taking poetry courses, I studied British literature, I studied, uh, you know, the kind of the Victorians, the modern, you know, uh, Shakespeare, Milton, you know, the kind of a classical education poetry. I also loved Greek uh, classical Greek literature. I read the Iliad when I was really young, you know, 12 or 13 or something. And even though I wrote it, I read it as poem, uh, excuse me, I read it as prose. I read a prose translation first, but I knew it was a poem. And I had a sense that you could, that the original was written in as a poem, even though I obviously couldn't read Greek or anything like that. Later in college, I read the, the excellent translation by Richmond Lattimore, which is really written you know, kind of the closest approximation to classical Greek, I think, in English that you can do. Uh, it's strange. It sounds strange to a modern English reader or, or listener. But, you know, I love the Greek stuff. So I, I loved Homer and I love stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, in college, in college, it all came together. And that's when I decided uh, in a typically arrogant way, probably not too unlike the narrator of Castle Bash, that I wouldn't be a poet. So I will go to poetry school. How hard can it be? I will go to poetry school and become a poet. Uh, and a friend of mine, I, I had poet friends, of course, and one of them was Joel Peckham, who uh, also uh, became a poet. We used to sit there all night and write our lit papers together and make fun of uh -huh. T.S. Eliot and uh, and pull all-nighters together, write poet. You know, it started writing papers about poems, and we ended up writing satires of the poems we were studying sometimes. And then on to poetry school, as it turns out, which... Uh, hmm. And where did it, uh, your being in a band and writing song lyrics sort of overlap with all this? Because it feels like the connection between po writing poetry and writing lyrics, uh, there must have been one, or am I wrong? Well, lyrics just mean uh, words set mm -hmm. to music. So, And with most poetry, you know, the people, you know, in our, in our lives, changed by technology so much, you know, since the, the mid 20th century. Of course, poetry has become a recorded thing. It's a strange thing where poetry, of course, at one point was never written down because people didn't have writing it and they recited it the way Homer was recited and other and Beowulf and other things. And then eventually people wrote it down and then it became sort of a written medium, but was often still memorized, of course. And, and the many people were not literate, but still memorized poems, of course, and folk songs and so on. And now we've kind of, after this explosion of print post-Gutenberg and through the industrial era, and so on, we've almost transitioned back to a post-literate culture where most people experience it through popular music, you know, whether it's whatever kind of rock and roll or hip hop or whatever, you know, stuff you want to mention. And that was very much in my mind. Actually, it's strange to not mention that when you ask me how I got involved in poetry, because of course it was through music. My mom was a passionate Bob Dylan fan. She would tell me that my first two words I ever said were uh, Bob Dylan. because she would, <laughs> She'd listen to Bob Dylan all the time and she'd say, who's singing, Julian? And I would say, Bob, Bob Dylan. Apparently those were my first two words. So at a young age, I was listening to Dylan and, uh, you know, before I could understand any of that stuff, but I grew up with that. 
from a very, you know, from a very young age, Bob Dylan and, you know, stuff of that era, um, folk music, the Grateful Dead and, and that kind of stuff. She's a little, little kind of not a hippie, but more of a folk uh, mm -hmm. person, Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell and Joan Collins, Judy Collins and that kind of stuff, Norma Blake and that kind of stuff. But then around my 13, 14 teenage, you know, awakening, I got super into David Bowie, Velvet Underground, Lou Reed, um, all kind, you know, all kinds of that stuff. And then, you know, of course, lyrics and stuff. Right. And when you were writing your own lyrics, did you did you think, you know, about your poetry education or were those two parts of your brain kind of separated like church and state? Uh, no, very much, very much together. I would get in bands because I would write lyrics, which I always thought was strange because it, writing lyrics was came very easily to me. And I, and I can sing reasonably well for a rock and roll type outfit, you know, so I, I'm a decent singer, but I've been a total hack. I can't play an instrument or contribute anything else except for the singing and the lyrics. So uh, I always thought that I was kind of getting one over on the guys, usually. Not that, not that these bands were all that great. <laughs> Uh, anyway, necessarily anything like that. And it was certainly no, not, nobody's anything, nothing that anybody has ever heard of, but no, I was, it was very much coming from the same place as poetry. And I was writing those uh, probably age 16 and later. And yeah, for when, mostly writing lyrics to all those all those songs over and over again and sometimes i would use them as as poems sometimes i would take poems and put them to somebody would say hey here's a song i did and i say oh you know this poem will work for that a few times i did that sort of thing but usually almost always i would start with you know they'd play some of the song for me and they were pretty easy pedestrian verse chorus verse type pop song structure so it wasn't hard to you know write a quatrain or two write a chorus quatrain and go back to the first quat, you know, and so forth. Well, one thing I'd love to think about is how, if you, if you really study poetry or even just read a bit of it, like, you know, it can, it makes you look at language in a way I don't feel anything else really does. And I love to imagine that, and I think it does, I'm just not sure, I guess, which is why I'm putting it to you. Do you feel that your study of poetry has influenced your writing in prose, your writing in uh, game design even? I mean, you see the occasional module or whatever where somebody sticks a, a stanza at the beginning, that's a, an easy thing to spot. Uh, or, of course, we've all read fantasy novels where people love to try and get a bit of uh, erudite by putting a bit of poetry, you know, in at the top of a chapter or a, a section of the book. But even just down to the actual like sentence construction and the rhythm, and you know, thinking about you trying to get Vance's sort of whimsical musicality down. How how do you feel this the kind of poetry has helped you out with your other writing? That's an interesting question, and it's one that I think about in my writing uh, in the game stuff uh, somewhat. The thing about prose versus poetry, of course, is the is in poetry you're um, you're writing should. I'm going to get in the soapbox slightly here, but this is also coming from my place as a poetry editor. And these days I, I pick poems, right? A lot more than write them. And that's an interesting way that I've been connected, say, for the last five, six years in a way that I never did before that, you know, was actually reading and reading and reading lots of bad poems and trying to find the five good ones in the 200 ones that people sent. So what you look for is, you know, language that is doing the work and pulling the wagon itself and giving you something new and is really written in a very focused, concise way as language. The, the, the difference between prose, you know, in prose, it tends to be a little more functional. There are prose writers, of course, who write at a very poetic level, and they bring that economy and that precision and that beauty to their prose work. I mean, of course. And I think Jack Vance is one, right? And I think Edgar Rice Burroughs is mostly not one, right? Actually, he has some pretty good writing, more than you would think. Oh, bless him. But when I read like Princess of Mars, I didn't get a feeling of 
<laughs> lyrical yeah no <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> you know um I think I think Lovecraft thinks that he is, but you know there are times when, you know, anyway, yeah. we, could, we could do that all day. But that's really different. So when you do the game writing stuff, of course, you, there's an aspect of technical writing to it because you ha you're trying to uh, game writing for those who might not be familiar. You know, you're writing a and D adventure, right? And you know, room number ten, there's two monsters waiting for the adventurers to come in and encounter them. Uh, and the adventurers, of course, can do absolutely anything that they can think of, right? So they can try to make friends with them or fight them or steal from them or sneak in or whatever. And you sort of have to give enough information for the judge to evince a proper response to whatever the PCs might attempt to do. Um, so you have to describe the environs, you have to describe the motivation of the monsters it might be very clear by this point, or it might not, and all that stuff. So it's a, there's an aspect of functional writing that you have to do there. But at the same time, you'd like it to be literary, a little bit literary and fun and that kind of thing. You know, I think some adventures, I pull it off more and some I pull it off less. You're writing under a deadline too. So if, if there's a, you know, if there's a choice between making it a little more flowery and ornate and having a little more fun with it versus being functional and making sure you're getting the job done and the judge has what they need. Yeah, I, I got to make sure the judge has what they need, right? Because I'm on a deadline and I got to turn this in in two weeks. I got to play test it three times and da, 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 da. You know, I, I've got to really be careful there. Having said all that, in, in theory, there is room for game writing to be terrific, you know, for it to be literary and for it to have that focus and, and beauty and everything that poetry has and that the best prose has. You know, people don't tackle it with that dimension in mind, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that they did, haven't done a lot of it yet. Absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, we've talked about a lot of um, poets and poetry, uh, mostly from the before times. I'm curious, are there any more contemporary poets that you're familiar with who you'd like to recommend to our listeners to go check out? Um, yeah, sure. So I'm not deeply read in modern stuff generally, but I will I will mention a few things. Oh shoot, I was going to um, I was going to get a list of uh, but I'll just give the poets names will be easier, I think. Most of my readings, you know, again, I'm going to have to say most of my reading, whether it's prose or non-game stuff, tends to be dead people. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty highly attuned to uh, old, old dead people. But as far as living poets go, I'll start with Fred Seidel, who uh, is a treasure and an older poet. He's definitely of a prior generation. He's probably in his early 80s now. So he's certainly not a young kid out there. I, I think if you, you know, if you enjoy the sort of irony and stuff of Castle Bash and Jack Vance, you would, you would get, uh, you'd get Seidel. He's very ironic, very mannered, very stylized. He does a little bit of rhyme, but, it, but it's often, um, for the sake of almost of poking fun at rhyme and making fun of popular song rhythms and, and the way we speak huh. in America. Um, and that kind of stuff, very dark, has a sort of mannered liberal critique of stuff, but he is not afraid to say things that are politically incorrect to make his point. So. But anyway, I, th I think he's, you know, one of our finest living poets. Uh, if we want to talk about real titans of, who are alive today. If you want to talk about younger people, you know, two people that I really enjoy just a lot. One is Michael Robbins, who writes in, uh, at least his first couple books have been written kind of in meter and verse type thing on really different subjects that are very, so even though his, his style is very uh, sort of archaic a little bit, his subject matter and stuff is, is slangy 
very easy to read, you know, more of a Gwendolyn Brooks type of approach. Uh, and, you know, he'll write about Slayer concerts and comic books and all kinds of stuff, but do it in verse and meter and stuff. And honestly, he's the, he's the poet that I most read who, who I think, oh, I should have written that poem. You know, he's writing in my voice, actually. He took my shtick. Uh, well, he got published with it first, so hats off to him. Another one that I read when I was in poetry school, I, uh, and my favorite poet in school with me at the time was a woman named Chelsea Minnis. And Chelsea uh, is, was the, the poet that I would go and look for her poems in the workshop that were, that were out there. We'd print all the poems each week, and then you'd go and you'd look through the pamphlets of poems and find the ones you liked and, and read them all, usually read them all and see what you liked and didn't. But I'd seek hers out because they were always good. They were always funny. Mm. They're funny. They're smart. They're easy. They're fun to read. They're not just funny, but they're fun to read. You know, they're they're just great. And uh, she's written at least three books. Her last book is a very probably is a love it or hate it kind of thing about. It's much of it is taken from old Hollywood movies. There are all these old Hollywood movie themes, and they're written in this sort of femme fatale voice. Who's uh, I? You know, they're so short. I should I should have just got the book and had one because it would take two seconds to read it. But they're really they're a lot of fun, and there's nothing uptight or super serious about it. Or uh, you know, you're not going to be preached to or anything like that. So I, you know, Chelsea's stuff is is a lot of uh, is a lot of fun, and her prior books um, are a little or not as thematic as that uh, centrally, but uh, have the have a spirit of play and a spirit of kind of subversion and irreverence in them too. And I, I think she's quite good. Okay, awesome. And you know what? If, uh, send me that list and I'll put it in the show notes so people can find the names uh, more easily uh, to go do their own research. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So, you know, you know uh, as well as I do, we have a little bonus section that we haven't uh, done anything quite like in any of our other interviews. I want to make sure we have the time for. So uh, just before we get to that, could you tell the listeners, uh, and I will link to this, of course, as well in the show notes and on the blog post, where people can find you? There's the Spellburn podcast. Uh, there's Castle Bash, of course. Again, that will be heavily linked to. Um, is there anything else you want people to be aware of or, or like a Twitter feed or something where they can find you that you'd like people to know about? Um, no. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm completely a ghost on social media. Uh, which is probably not the best way to promote oneself. I will invite anybody who is curious about poetry or gaming or uh, Castle Bash or other stuff, or who Tim Burton, uh, who's interested in the Nightmare Before Castle Bash or anybody else, feel free to email me at julian underscore burnick at uh, yahoo. Uh, dot com. Uh, you're certainly welcome to to be in touch. Uh, I, you can also Spellburn is our Dungeon Crawl Classics podcast that we do, of course. I start on episode 44 and run through. I think we're up to 115 right now. So there's much more Julian than you'll ever want in those. And uh, yeah, I think that's kind of my main presence. Of course, I've got about I don't know how many are published as of yet, but six or seven or eight uh, Goodman Games adventures out there that are just a Google or two away. So if you're curious, you. Can can certainly look into those and follow me in Goodman Games. And I run a lot of games uh, at conventions. So if you, um, you know, Goodman Games has been running uh, two to three virtual conventions every year. So you could uh, look for my games on, uh, you know, those various uh, Goodman Games platforms. Yeah, there's also a variation of Cyclops Con, right? And there's a, another yeah. one coming soon, Empire Cyclops Con, I think. Exactly right. Uh, Empire Cyclops Con is coming uh, beginning of November and yeah, so far we've done Cyclops Con, Bride of Cyclops Con, Spawn of Cyclops Con, and this one is Empire of the Cyclops Con. If you have 
more variations on CyclopsCon, you can feel free to uh, email info at goodmangames.com. But uh, at any rate, I, I'll be, I hope, uh, you know, doing freelance work for Goodman for a while. And, you know, my products are over there. I also have done some other stuff for Shield of Faith Studios. I did a post-apocalyptic American game and some stuff with Steve Bean Games, my first published gaming work. So there's there's more S stuff and my own Nowhere City project. So, you know, I've done a bunch of gaming stuff and you can certainly uh, Google around for it. Cool. And uh, yeah, I will link uh, as much of that as I possibly can in the show notes, uh, listeners. So it's all there, easy for you to find. Okay, so now for that special bonus I promised, Julian is going to read for us a selection from Castle Bash. Thank you. I'm going to just read from, uh, I'm going to do four stanzas, unless Oliver gives me a thumbs down after the third. You know what I mean? No, no, no. no. <laughs> that sounds good to me. This selection is from Canto 3, which is pretty much smack dab in the middle. We'll call it just right around the middle. And this is the part where uh, our narrator, the quote-unquote protagonist, which is probably too strong a word, is uh, intrigued and he's learned that there is a, uh, a girl in the, in the wife's tower, as they call it, and he's quite interested, but he doesn't know how to get in and he's trying to scheme to how to get into the tower and meet this girl at this point, which doesn't turn out at all uh, the way he thinks it will, but that's another story. A cold week passed among the cloudy peaks and summer whimpered into ruddy streaks against the west, and sunsets crept upon us earlier, though later came the dawn. The dark increased upon my castle home, the long night slowly lengthened to the norm, and dark clouds rumbled through with heavy storm, erupting from the sky's once placid dome. Then the silver fingerprints of the snow, flirting like a girl you'd like to know. I, frustrated, stalked the parapets, and gazed down lordly from the battlements, imagining myself a future count. I'd govern well of this, I had no doubt. My judgment sound, my instincts sure and right, and at my side, my wife by marriage plight. And Edwin, surely he'd go off somewhere and hunt his fortunes in a darkened wood, where his fate might come yet to ill or good, Accounts friends understood just such affairs. At night, my dreams were haunted by that face. As time receded from our meeting still, the dream of her intensified until I woke up in a vision of dark grace and wandered through the castle in her grip as surely as the kiss upon my lips that I felt still each morning. I saw none, none but the phantom lusts in which I spun Dizzy and sweating, sheets wrapped on my limbs, hearing her manic laughter and devil's hymns. Perhaps, I thought, my mind was leaving me. In some ways, it had always longed to flee the prison of my personality. Though neither gross nor ugly, hardly handsome, my body was a sad necessity. My over-eager eyes were just a transom through which my soul, which stood upon a chair, sought to peek out into the rarer air and see the world without, so brightly lit, so ready to leave, and yet scared to commit. So that's, uh, I guess that gives a little bit of a flavor of the uh, the internal monologue of, of, of our unnamed narrator. Oh, that was lovely. Thank you so much for reading it to us. 
Thank you for having me. And, and you know, Oliver, thank you for doing the podcast. It's really been fun diving in. And uh, I love, especially, I mean, you know, the content's all great, but your honesty and going through and making this very transparent, how you're going about the process, your questions, your self-questions, doubts, the process of how you think through them and work through them uh, is is just terrific. I, I really, uh, I, I admire especially the honesty. Wherever you start, wherever you end, that process and is so great to hear as a writer, you know, to hear another writer going through that internal part of it um, is really fun. And I also want to say the, the two writers from Northern Ireland who were writing together I just can't imagine oh, how the heck. Minuto, yeah. yeah, I can't imagine how the heck two people can write. I just, I can't, I don't get it. Oh my God, I admire that so much and I'm totally fascinated by it. But uh, yeah, probably not for me. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm not sure. I think they might write some poetry. Who knows? Maybe, maybe we should connect you guys. Um, but uh, and they can answer that for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. And yeah, the transparency is a big part of what I thought would maybe. I, I prefer to speak that way when I'm talking about writing in general. And also I thought it might help set this podcast apart from the others, you know, uh, to discuss writing because I feel it's so easy to fall into kind of an opaque, you know, make yourself always look like you're succeeding all the time forever, you know, online presence kind of pressure thing. And also um, to be very didactic and say, like, this is how it's done. Whereas, like, I'm just trying to share, you know, I'm figuring this out as I go along and I want to take you guys along with me. And thank you so much for spending time with me today and, and, and giving me that favor, you know, favor from the other side. Let me learn more about you. I've really enjoyed that. I guess that's, uh, we're getting to the end of the clock here. So thank you so much again for your time, Julian. And I'll talk to you again, I hope. My pleasure, Oliver. Thank you for having me. Cheers. So I'm writing a novel. Features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me and Julian, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>